0: It's been more than 15 years since Nuseba Hassan was last seen. She disappeared from her family's house in Canada in 2006. And one of the most chilling facts about her case is that no one, including her family, reported her missing for nine years. Nuseba came from a big family. She has seven siblings, and her mom and dad were alive when she went missing. There was another thing that stood out, for years, not a single person came forward publicly acknowledging they knew her. No posters, no billboards, no hotlines, no family pleas for her safe return. This all seemed very strange to journalist Habiba Nasheen when she started investigating the case. And she's going to join me here today to share what she's found. Without further introduction, here is my interview with Habiba Nasheen.
1: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon.
0: So, Habiba, what drew you to Nasiba Hassan's story?
2: So, in spring of 2019, I found myself reading an anonymous email. And the person just said basically that there is a missing woman. Her name is Naseba Hassan. And there's a lot more to her story than what's been out there. And the person also says, I'm related to her. And I'm happy to help you. But you have to promise to keep my identity hidden. Um, And that was the very first time that I heard anything about Naseba Hassan or this case. Did you ever learn who the person who sent the email was? (laughs) Yes. So it took more than a year for this person to agree to meet with me. And we set up this time at 11 a.m. at a hotel. And I'm there excited to meet with her. And no one shows up. And I text her and say, hey, are you on your way? And no response. So no texting, no one's answering the phone. And I just, I'm convinced that I've just been played. But then like a couple hours later, I get a call. Oh, I thought we were meeting at 4.30. Um, and it was a real person. And the story that she told me just really blew me away. Basically, the emailer was the biological daughter of this missing woman who I call Yasmin in the podcast, and that's not her real name. Um, we are protecting her real identity for lots of reasons. And when Yasmin was two years old, Nuseba, the missing woman, put her up for adoption. And when she did that, she told Children's Services that she wanted the child not to ever find out where she came from and who she was. And when Yasmin grows up, she's just obsessed with this question about who her birth mother is. She didn't know her name. She knew that her birth mother was around 19 years old. So she could guess what, what year she was born in. But she didn't have an actual date of birth. She didn't have a picture. Nothing.
0: So how does she find out that Nuseba is her mother?
2: So she sort of became a junior detective, just obsessed with this question of, you know, she, she wanted to know who her birth mother was. She knew her birth mother was from Jordan, and she grew up in the Canadian city of Hamilton. So she would Google Hamilton, Jordanian. And nothing would come up. And that went on for years. And then right before her 18th birthday, she was Googling this. And this news story pops up. It's an article that says a woman named Naseba Hassan, who is from Hamilton and originally from Jordan, went missing and the police are investigating her disappearance. And there's a picture of a woman in this article. And Yasmin looks at this picture that's accompanying this article and says, I just knew that was her. And the thing is, Yasmin is mixed race. She's half black and half Jordanian, and Nuseba was Jordanian. There's no obvious resemblance that I can see. So to this day, it is amazing to me that she looked at this picture and thought, that's my birth mother. But she wanted to be sure. So she, there's a phone number for a detective at the end of this article, and she picks up the phone and calls this detective and says, hey, I think uh, the person you're looking for is my birth mother. And the detective says, "Sorry, I can't talk to you. You're a minor." So she's like, "Okay well, I'm turning eighteen in a few weeks, and i'll just I'll just call call back then. But in the meantime, what she doesn't know is that her adoptive mother, who was driving on the highway one day, she hears this news story on the radio about a Jordanian woman from Hamilton who was missing, and she tells me she had the exact same thought that it had to be her daughter's birth mother. She pulled over the highway, called the detective, gave him the details about Yasmin, where she had adopted her from, how old she was when she was adopted. And the detective says, are you ready? Yes, it's her. And that's a story that Yasmeen and her adoptive mother told me the first time I met them in this hotel, about how they pieced together that Naseba Hassan, this missing woman, was Yasmin's biological mother.
0: Now, why did you decide to investigate this case
2: in particular? To be honest, there was something about Yasmin's desperation, I guess you could say, about her wanting to know so badly about this, the woman who gave birth to her. And she didn't know this at the time that she sent this email, but I'm an adoptive mother. And my daughter was put up for adoption under very similar mysterious circumstances as Yasmine. So when she tells me about this desperation of wanting to know who she was and where she came from... I just remember thinking, yeah, I I get that. I really get that because I've been obsessed with the question of who gave birth to my daughter and where my daughter came from. Because I think for adoptive family, those pieces of information are just so important. And you have so little to give your child about their story. I mean, I have an older son who... I gave birth to, and I have a baby book where I, you know, document the entire journey of my pregnancy and all these photos and cards that we got from our baby shower. And I don't have any of that for my daughter. And I don't have much to tell her about her story. I don't, you know, we weren't even told what her date of birth is. We just know the street corner where she was found. So I think I honestly just, I could understand what, it's like to want to give a child information about who they are and where they came from. So when Yasmin and her adoptive mother sort of asked me to help investigate this, I just, I really couldn't say no <laughs> because I, 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 I got it. I got what they, were, what they were feeling and where they were coming from.
0: I think that's absolutely incredible. Um, I have to know, were you ever hesitant about taking this on? Yes.
2: Yasmeen, when she reads this article, she's 18 years old. And then by the time we meet, she's she's 21 years old. And she's still a young kid, you know, Not, you know, she's a young woman. And I wondered about the trauma that Yasmeen would experience depending on what I would find. And was she ready for that? And Throughout the investigation, I know there were so many times when I just, you know, asked her, like, are you sure? Because when you go into this and you know there's a missing woman and the police are investigating, I had no idea what I would find. And was she ready to hear this? And her answer has always been, yes, I want to know. I want to know what happened to my mom, and I want to know the truth.
0: And what did you learn about Nuseba when you started looking?
2: What stood out to me is how little was out there about Naseva. And there was just some few news articles confirming that a woman from the Hamilton area has been missing since 2006. But she wasn't actually reported missing to the police until 2015. And that was really strange. I also knew when I started looking into it that she was a Jordanian woman and she was 26 years old when she went missing. And what was also strange is that Her family member had been the one who reported her missing to the police after nine years. All that was known at that time was that a family member picked her up and dropped her off at the family farm. And then no one saw her ever again.
0: Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the Parcast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem, this podcast has it all, from the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: Now, obviously the podcast is about her disappearance,
2: but it seems like it's much more than that. I think what I wanted to do was just uncover who Naseba was. And also create a portrait for this woman who the world just forgot, you know, so much of the podcast is me trying to figure out what she was like as a kid. What did she enjoy doing as a teenager? Who were her friends? Who were her teachers? And one of the big mysteries for me was, how do you get to a point in your life when you can disappear and no one apparently notices that you're missing for nine years? Yeah. I mean, so I have
0: to know, where did you land about what happened to Nuseba?
2: We know a lot that wasn't public before. When I started this investigation in 2019, I remember meeting the detective for the first time, who detective who has been on the case for many years. And he was surprisingly very open. And, you know, what he said essentially to me is there hasn't been any movement in the case for the last three years. So this was essentially a cold case and there weren't any leads that police was following up on far as I can tell. Um, So we know that sometime in late November 2006, Nuseba has a meeting with a social worker. Um, She's on social assistance, so she has to meet this social worker. We know she's alive then. And she was living with her boyfriend at the time, and there's some indication that her family was not very happy about that. They weren't happy about the fact that she was, you know, living with a man not wed. And it's a family from Jordan and they were very religiously conservative. Um, So this was not something that went well with them. So around 2006, she's been dating this guy for a couple of years and things are not going so well. And what I know from the police is she gets a call and tells her boyfriend that her family is asking her to come and stay with them for a while. And she's going to go live at the farm with them. And one of her brothers, Hassan, Hassan, that's his name, same first name and same last name, picked her up. And that's the last confirmed sighting. Uh, The brother told the police, from what I understand from the detectives, that yes, he did pick her up, but he says she just walked off the farm. So that's what we know about the last day. Do we know why she was going to the farm? There's actually a lot of things that don't make sense about that. There was no one living at the farm. It belonged to her parents who were out of the country at the time. Her brother, Hassan Hassan, had a history of losing his temper, so much so that he had been kicked out of his mosque for lashing out. And it is strange for a lot of people why he was picking her up. They weren't close. In fact, there's a there's a lot of indication that he was incredibly angered by the fact that she had had a child um, a few years back outside marriage. So that was something he was visibly and very vocal um, about that he did not approve of. And I interviewed Nuseba's older sister, and she told me that she heard one day that Naseba was visiting the farm, and she couldn't get there that day, so she got there the next morning. And when she arrives, her brother, Hassan Hassan, who the police said picked her up, was outside. And she told me, he just told her that, yeah, Naseba was here, but she's gone. She took some money and she left. And she says she searched the entire farm and there was no sign of her. Police's investigative theory is that sometime after she was picked up by her brother, that someone killed her and disposed of her body. Why do you think the case has been so difficult to solve? I think it's a good question. And I think one of the reasons, look, cases about people of color who go missing don't often get the same attention in the media that, say, a white woman going missing do. That's just, I think, part of why her story and what happened to her just didn't make the same kind of headlines that other similar cases might. And we also hear, you know, how important it is for the person who goes missing to be reported missing in the first, you know, 72 hours for, for evidence. And this is nine years before someone actually reports her to the police. So nine years have passed before the police could even start their search for evidence. And that's a really long time in a murder investigation where, you know, finding physical evidence is so crucial. And the fact that there is no body, I think it's hard to prove that she's even dead. But just a few months ago, police said publicly for the first time that they have a suspect. They haven't named him publicly but it's pretty easy to figure out from from my investigation that it's her brother, Hassan Hassan, they're referring to. Did you try to speak to him in your investigation? Yeah. Phone calls, emails, letters, laying out our findings and giving, you know, wanting to give him a chance to hear his story. And all I got back was radio silence. Well, and I understand that some of her family
0: have told you that they believe she isn't dead.
2: Yes. And that's... That's interesting. You know, some of the family just refused to accept the possibility that she isn't alive anymore. And and I get that, you know, this isn't something that's easy to accept. Um, and they've just been adamant that the police is just wrong and she's out there and will just come back one day. Is there a chance she's still alive? I think what's important to know about Naseba is that she was someone who really grew up in the system. She you know, she was on social assistance. She received a lot of social services in the Hamilton area. She was part of the system since the age of 14, essentially, when she ran away from home. She would regularly end up at a woman's shelter. And around the time that she went missing, all the tracks basically stopped. When you were in the system in Canada, it's kind of, it's different in that there is a paper trail. You know, there is a centralized uh, health card that you need to see any doctor, even though the the visit's free. After the time of two thousand and six, there's no visit to the doctor. there's no travel on her passport. And that's, you know, that night at the farm, after that, there's just no record of her existing at all. And I think that's what allows the police to be fairly certain that, no, she's no longer alive. Did you come across any theory or reason why someone would want to harm her? I think the best explanation for that is one I read in a police affidavit. And that is essentially the police's investigative theory, which is that Naseba was someone whose lifestyle really went against her family's conservative views. I mean, she ran away from home many times. She had lived with at least two boyfriends that we know of. and, And her parents or her family were aware of that. She had a child out of wedlock with someone who was Black, so the child was very visibly of a different race. And I certainly think, you know, I don't think that everyone in the family um, thought this way, but there were definitely family members who found the fact that she had had a child out of wedlock just something that is, you know, unforgivable. She came from a family that literally helped build the local mosque, so People in the family found this really hard to swallow, that that she was living the life that she was living.
0: So, what do we know about the circumstances surrounding why she put her child up for adoption?
2: Nuseba was 19 when she gave up Yasmin, and she had him with her boyfriend at the time. And things weren't going so well, and she reaches out to her family for help. We know that her boyfriend was, uh, according to police reports, he was physically um, violent towards her. She It seems like she was trying to get out of this relationship, and she reached out to her family for help. And they basically say in return, you can come back, but you would have to give up your daughter for adoption. Basically, they were just refusing to accept this baby. Her relationship with her boyfriend just sort of deteriorates over time, and She eventually reports him to the police. He's arrested, and allegedly he sends a friend to break into her apartment, beat her up. And this friend tells her that if she ever did that again, that your kid would be next. And the morning after that assault is when she goes to children's services to put her daughter up for adoption. Up until that point, there was every indication that that this was somebody who loved her daughter very much, and was doing everything she can to take care of her. After that, she went to live in Jordan with her family. And that's that's basically how she was given up.
0: In the podcast, the audience actually learns a lot about you as well, um, about your
2: relationship with your father. Were you hesitant at all to talk about those things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as a journalist, you're much more comfortable telling stories about other people than, you know, my own. But, you know, there came a point in the reporting that there was just so much about Nuseba's life, about her troubled teenage years, that I really understood. And I also come from a very similarly religious Muslim family. So what she was up against and, and, and the world she was navigating, I, I really understood that, you know, from my personal lived experience. And to be honest, I, I just wanted to be transparent. And tell the audience that I, I get that world and I wanted to acknowledge that. Now, you say in the podcast that some of the
0: stuff you're sharing, even some of the closest people to you, don't know about these things. So what went
2: behind the decision to come forward and share your story now? I think there was something about the silence that I was seeing around what happened in Naseba that really bugged me. And it made me really think about the ways we keep secrets to protect people in our own family who we suspect may have done something or we know they have done something, but we just don't want to bring any harm to them. So we just, we just keep quiet. And there was an uncomfortable, I guess, realization that I had done the same all my life. I had never told people that my dad was physically abusive, especially when he felt that I was doing something that went against what he thought a good Muslim um, was not supposed to do.
0: So you understood the pressure she felt to follow her family's beliefs.
2: Yes, completely understood and could relate to that world.
0: What do you want the world to know about Nuseba?
2: I think it's really easy to get lost in all of this, who Nuseba was. And it's easy to just see her as a victim. But I think it's important to remember that she was a woman who fought to live her life on her own terms. She was incredibly courageous, tenacious, and... So is kind of her daughter. Um, So I think the way I see her from having spent three years, you know, piecing together her life is she was somebody who resisted and really fought for a life that she wanted. Habiba, how can people hear your podcast and Nuseva's story So it's season three of the series Conviction. It's called The Disappearance of Nuseba Hassan, and all episodes are available now exclusively on Spotify. That is incredible. Well, I just want to say thank you, Habiba, for chatting with us about Nuseba. Thank you so much for having me. It was
0: a pleasure. This episode of Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and Habiba Nosheen. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.